Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf, and welcome to my podcast, Cleaning Up the Mental Mess, a podcast dedicated to helping you learn how to take back control of your mental health and live your happiest and healthiest life. In this special Mother's Day podcast, I am covering all things Women's Brain Health with Dr. Lisa Mosconi. Dr. Lisa Mosconi and I discuss how gender impacts brain health, why women suffer more than men from anxiety, migraines, brain injuries, strokes, and Alzheimer's, how medical research is gender biased, and why this is dangerous, what to eat to reduce the risk of cognitive decline. Dr. Lisa and I will give some great tips on how women can take back control of their mental health and their brain health. Dr. Lisa Mosconi is the director of the Women's Brain Initiative and associate director of the Alzheimer's Prevention Clinic at Will Cornell Medical College, New York, Presbyterian Hospital, where she serves as an associate professor of neuroscience in neurology and radiology. She's also an adjunct faculty member of the Department of Psychiatry at New York University NYU School of Medicine and at the Department of Nutrition at NYU Steinhardt School of Nutrition and Public Health. Dr. Mosconi holds a PhD degree in neuroscience and nuclear medicine and is a certified integrative nutritionist and holistic healthcare practitioner. She is passionately interested in how the risk of memory loss and Alzheimer's disease can be mitigated, if not prevented, through the combination of appropriate medical care and lifestyle modifications involving diet, nutrition, physical and intellectual fitness. Dr. Mosconi has published over 100 peer-reviewed papers in prestigious medical journals. If you enjoy my podcast and want to know how you can help me continue making them possible, please consider subscribing wherever you listen and leaving a five-star review. And please continue sharing this podcast with friends and family and on social media. During this crisis, it's especially important to pay attention to your mental health. And I want to make sure I'm helping however I can. So send us any questions and concerns you have and follow me on social media to get daily mental health tips, techniques, and strategies. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leaf on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Now, on to today's episode. Dr. Lisa Marconi, what a absolute honor to have you in my studio with me today. Such a privilege. The work that you're doing is absolutely vitally important. And so, especially for us understanding our female brains and things like Alzheimer's and and menopause, you just bring a whole new, very, very needed angle to this. And thank you for your work. And thank you for the taking the time out of your busy schedule to do this interview. Thank you for having me. It's really a pleasure to, to be part of your show. Oh, I'm so pleased. Before we begin, can you just share a little bit about yourself that's not in your bio? You know, what yeah, spurred your sure. <laughs> yeah, I like I like asking that question because it gives us the insight into into you and your brain and your mind and, and you know what spurred your interest in neuroscience and you were a child in Italy and when yeah. you were a child in Italy, what keeps you motivated? I'd love to hear that. Mm, sure, sure. So like you said, I, I was born and raised in Florence in Italy. 
And then I went to a French high school. So here's my accent. Love <laughs> it, love French, it. Yeah. And I, I always wanted to be a scientist. I come from a family of scientists. Both my parents are nuclear physicists. Wow. Both of them, which is quite a thing, actually. And, wow. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. That's, <laughs> that's the vibe in the house. You know, that's all the vibe. <laughs> yeah, you had no option. You had uh, no option. Sorry, you just... Well, <laughs> Believe it or not, my parents were not happy at all with my choice. Of, oh, really? Yes, yes. It was quite a struggle, a little bit like my grandma was not happy at all. And it was it was the whole thing. That's interesting. Why weren't they happy? I think because neuroscience and biology is not considered as pure a scientific mm. field as physics and mathematics physics. or even chemistry, I think somehow my parents were really hoping that I, that I did something more noble. <laughs> oh, well, I, yeah. I'm very pleased you went into what you did because we yeah. need your research. So Thank you. I, <laughs> so, I agree. I always said to them, I remember it was like six, the first time we had this conversation around my future career. And I was yeah. like, well, what's the point of understanding how atoms work if you don't know how your own body works right i love that and i remember wow. my mom was like oh you got a good point there yeah <laughs> yeah about six seven you know i remember it was very that's young amazing. Was like, that's amazing wow yeah. so you were very driven from such a young age i was very driven yes I, i've always been really really been interested in the human mind and behavior at first and then i thought i, I really thought it would be a psychiatrist and then I realized that being a psychiatrist means like a lot of one-on-one -on -one time with somebody mm. else. And I'm yeah. totally not cut out for that. So yeah. I was like, well, no, maybe I'm going to go the biology route and more like neuroscience and something like that. And that was really, so in Italy, you go to high school, you finish mm -hmm. high school when you're like 18. I was 18. I started a little younger. And then you sign up for university and university is like five years of a very specialized topic. Mm -hmm. It's not like in the United States that you're major, majoring in biology and then you have a minor in business. It's yes. all like one thing. Yeah, that's what I had because I, I grew up in South Africa under the British system and I was also trained like that. So, yeah, uh, I understand. That's exactly the same. Right. So you really have mm -hmm. to know what you want to do because otherwise you mm -hmm. just waste a lot of time. And then I, I said, okay, mm -hmm. then I'm going to do neuroscience, five years of that, pretty much everything you can learn about the brain, you, you get to learn really in five years. And then around the same time, my grandmother started showing signs of cognitive decline and behavioral changes. They were quite unpleasant in some ways. There are some people who really become aggressive behaviorally and quite difficult to deal with mm -hmm. at the early stages of dementia already. And we didn't know back mm -hmm. then that, that's, that that was the problem, but then it became clear very quickly that she has some form of cognitive deterioration. And in Italy, there's no assisted living in your home. Mm -hmm. There's nowhere to really, you know, you, you keep your grandparents in the house with you basically. And that's, mm. what, was, that's mm -hmm. what happened to us. And, and my grandma had dementia for, I'm going to say a solid 10 years before wow. she passed away. Yeah. So it was really, this was really quite a progression and, and quite a struggle for us as a family. And so I, I started mm -hmm. looking into that. And then just a couple of years after she started showing, showing signs of cognitive decline, her younger sister started having the, the exact same symptoms. And mm. a few years later, the youngest sister as well, whereas 
their brother was absolutely fine until he passed away mm. later on. So basically, my grandma was one of four siblings, three sisters and one brother. And mm-hmm. all three sisters developed Alzheimer's disease and died of it, whereas the brother Goodness. was spared. Yes, it was quite, quite, wow. <laughs> it was really a wild moment. eye-opener, yeah. Yes, and back then, we didn't know that much about Alzheimer's disease, honestly, mm-hmm. because I've been doing this for almost 20 years. Mm-hmm. And when I started, I, I also asked, I said, does it matter for Alzheimer's disease whether you're a woman or a man? And the answer was like, no, not really. And mm-hmm. back then, what people were looking for were genetic mutations. Mm-hmm. Was something in your DNA that, that would just give you Alzheimer's disease and make mm-hmm. you develop Alzheimer's disease regardless of you, mm-hmm. right? There mm-hmm. was no attention being given to your lifestyle or to your environment or medical health. It was just a search for genetic mutations and genetic markers. Mm-hmm. I was I can relate to that because I've been in the in my field now for almost 38 years and 38 years ago mm-hmm. when I started with my undergraduate degree it was the same thing we were told the brain couldn't change right. and that these you know, it's all, all everything done on male brains and yes. yes I can relate I can relate to what you're saying. Right. And also specifically for what I was trying to do which is really understanding Alzheimer's and most really Alzheimer's prevention <laughs> was my mm. goal, especially in women. The pushback that I would get all the time was that, well, you know, women live longer than men. And Alzheimer's disease is a disease of old age. So, of course, you guys get Alzheimer's more than men do. So, Lisa, t- tell us a little bit more about how initially Alzheimer's was approached as, well, being researched as a genetic issue. Right. So, when I started, In the field of Alzheimer's disease, most people thought of Alzheimer's as something that resulted from either bad genes in your DNA Mm -hmm. or aging or a combination of the two, which is really problematic when you're you're trying to look at something different, right? So it now turns out that many years later, Mm -hmm. it turns out that, yes, there is, of course, a genetic component to the disease, but it's not nearly as predominant or as frequent as previously thought. So no more than 2% of all Alzheimer's cases are genetically determined, which Mm. means that no more than 2% of Alzheimer's patients carry these very strong, aggressive, highly penetrant genetic mutations that cause Alzheimer's disease. But for 98% of the population, people just don't have these genetic mutations. Mm. So there's a lot more than DNA alone. That's playing a role. Mm. It really is playing a role in this increasing or decreasing the risk of Alzheimer's disease, which is not to say that DNA is not important, right? As exactly. a scientist, and I'm sure you'll agree with that, DNA, our DNA is really involved in every single aspect of our lives. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But, but for your genetics to be causing a disease like Alzheimer's disease you know, is just not as common as we thought it would be. So there's a lot more that plays a role and there are a lot more things that are working together to really determine whether or not a person is going to get Alzheimer's disease. And the other part of the puzzle is that Alzheimer's is actually not a disease of old age, like we mm. previously thought. And it really took two decades of brain imaging studies, including a lot of my own work, to really show how Alzheimer's disease actually starts with negative changes in the brain years, if not decades, before clinical symptoms become evident 
on mm. clinical examination. So the timeline is no longer when you're 70 or 80. We really need to start looking at people who are middle-aged, so 50s and 60s. Now, that is fascinating because you also, you say, in your, I'm so glad you've actually made people more aware of this and how the research has changed. The, yes. two, the 2%, just very quickly, the 2% risk factor, that falls within the overarching research that disease is coming from a 2 to 5%. The rest is related to lifestyle or combination of factors. So this puts Alzheimer's into that category as well, which is really great. And I see in your book, you talk about it's early onset dementia that is the inherited version. So it's yes. not, yeah, so that's if people are getting it in their early 30s and 40s. Is that correct for early onset? Well, early onset is actually even earlier, even earlier. than that. Yes. So I find that there's a little bit of confusion over these terms that are being used widely without really explaining to patients what they actually mean for us as clinicians. Mm-hmm. So early onset Alzheimer's disease means you are developing the disease when you're like in your 40s, more mm-hmm. likely than not. It's a very early form of the disease that is literally caused by these genetic mutations that cause an overproduction of a specific protein that is called an amyloid mm-hmm. beta peptide, which mm-hmm. then leads to these big Alzheimer's plaques, right? Mm-hmm. These amyloid plaques or Alzheimer's plaques. And for people with these genetic mutations, then yes, we know what causes Alzheimer's, what happens in your brain as you get Alzheimer's, and we can kind of predict how old you're going to be when Alzheimer's really kicks in. But that, again, is like 2% of the population Mm -hmm. at most. Mm -hmm. For everybody else, most patients develop Alzheimer's after age 60, and that is considered a late-onset form of disease. So I think it's important to Mm, refine the vocabulary because so many patients will come to me and say, oh my God, I'm so scared. I'm so worried. My mom was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's disease. And I'm like, well, how old was she when she was diagnosed? 65. Mm, Like, I understand, you know, I understand that for you, it feels like that's very early. But for me, that is not early onset Alzheimer's. It's late onset Alzheimer's, which is better news for you because it really suggests that your mom is unlikely to have one of these genetic mutations. And so you are also very unlikely to have one. So I think it's really important Mm -hmm. to understand this because so many people are worried just because of vocabulary. I'm so I'm so glad that you've straight that's why I wanted you to re-explain that and say what you've done, which is really great. I think it put a lot of people's Thank minds you. at ease. With my mind it is for sure, once I understood that a little bit better because it was like, well, am I going to get Alzheimer's? Because my grandmother had it, her two sisters had it, was going to happen to my mom. And then once I understood the genetics a little bit better, I was like, okay, I mean there's no certainty, of course it's no guarantee, but the odds look a little bit better. Exactly. So there's a bunch <laughs> of other factors and that's what you're going to unpack now that we need to know as a woman what can put us more at risk. But very quickly, I want to just ask you this question that you have in your book because it really caught my attention that before proceeding in terms of getting genetic testing, there's a lot of repercussions of having a test because if you perfectly, I'm reading from your book, if you're perfectly healthy, 40-year-old who has, a, has seen a parent claim by the disease, would you want to know if you face the same destiny? How will this knowledge change your life? Will knowing this help or harm you? That really caught my attention that you actually approached it from that angle because our mind Mm. is so strong that you know you've got to make sure that you don't throw yourself into something that you're actually not going to get can you speak a little bit about why you wrote that in the book 
I write this because I uh, we face it all the time at the clinic and at the outside at the Women's mm. Brain Initiative, which is really what I launched a few years ago to better understand Alzheimer's risk in mm. women specifically. And so many of our patients come to us in the first place because they really have concerns about their genes and their DNA and how having a family history of Alzheimer's disease can impact your own risk. And many, many really ask for genetic testing. And something that I, I try to clarify is that it's not as simple as many people think, because right now we, we live in this age where we have just access to all sorts of information, yeah. including a lot of genotyping that's done in ways that are honestly not optimal. Questionable, yeah. Yeah, there, yeah, I would say we just, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you as a scientist can relate to this. Mm. For me, somebody says to me, well, I got 23andMe, I did 23andMe and I'm an APOE4 carrier. Mm. My first question is, like, well, what is, what is the test three test reliability? Exactly. Yeah. Okay? I mean, how accurate is this test? Not that I mm. don't believe it necessarily, but I don't know anything about this test. Whereas where I do the test myself through a CLIA certified lab, which is the gold standard of genetic testing, mm-hmm. that I know exactly that the results are 98% correct. Reliable, yeah. Right. No, and so I was reading a little bit more about genetic testing, and it turns out that these direct-to-consumer tests are actually not that accurate. Mm-hmm. Like 23andMe in particular, there was that fantastic paper in Nature, I don't know if you saw that, showing that the test three test rela- No, the, I mean... The rate of false positive for the Barca gene, the Barca 1 gene, mm. and other major yeah, yeah, genes yeah. for breast cancer was basically 40%. Mm. So you have a 40% chance of having the wrong result. Oh gosh, that's terrible. Yeah, that's it's terrible. Dan- that's I mean, dangerous. Yeah, it's very dangerous. These were all women who literally freaked out and went to an oncologist to ask, "What do I do? I have this Barca gene. Do I need to get surgery?" Oh gosh! You know, and it turns out, well, no, actually, what you need to do is to repeat the test via a clear certified company. Then it turns out the test is negative, so you have nothing to do. Oh basically. my gosh! But okay. Just imagine that the fear and the confusion is that like nobody in my family has it. What do I do? Exactly. And and I also think that there's a lot of, I, I believe and I strongly believe, and I wrote this in the book, that genetic testing has to come with genetic counseling mm. before. And this is something that so many with you. just do not offer and do not provide. And especially these tests that you just spit in a bottle and who knows how that is, you know. Exactly. How, who knows if that's even accurate, rather a blood as compared to a blood test. Exactly. I mean, there are many considerations that go in there. So for us, we are moving towards offering genetic counseling for mm. all our patients, but especially if somebody has a genetic mutation for Alzheimer's that, or is interested in being tested for a specific genetic mutations, then it's really, really important to really understand the implications of that. Mm, okay, that's really good. I'm so glad we got stuck into that. We <laughs> <laughs> did get stuck in for sure. You know, it, the reaction is just so unpredictable. So unpredictable. Mm-hmm. We have so many patients who want to know their APOE4 genotype. So there's there's this gene, it's called the apolipoprotein E mm-hmm. or E, mm-hmm. that's becoming so trendy. Where now, because of 23andMe, everybody 
is able to get this test done mm-hmm. to find out if they're an APOE4 carrier or not carrier, mm-hmm. where APOE4 genotype, which is one of three variants, APOE4, mm-hmm. 2, 3, and 4, the APOE4 is associated with a higher risk of Alzheimer's. Now, there's so much misinformation around this that so many patients believe that they have the bad Alzheimer's gene. Mm, my goodness. And just that fear alone, I mean, I don't know if you've seen that study, Lisa, that with the, where they looked at just the fear of getting Alzheimer's increases okay. your chance of getting Alzheimer's by 63%. <laughs> so okay. it's, it's a, yeah, so there's a, that, that's why that caught my attention that you said that, because you've got to worry about, you know, watch, watch about our mind reaction to the whole thing. Right. So for some people, finding their APOE genotype, for example, finding out that they're carriers is really a strong reason to, to take better care of themselves. So they don't get the fear. They're not as worried, but they do start working more. On their lifestyle choices. Mm. Yes. They really start paying more attention to what their doctors say. Well, that's very good. Join an Alzheimer's prevention clinic, but then there's everybody else. You know, we have patients saying, if I find out that I have this thing, like if I find out that I have amyloid plaques in my brain, I'm yeah. going to jump the bridge. Mm. You have to tell them about those studies of the people that have reached centenarians, the centenarians that have died totally in control of their cognition and they've got lots of amyloid beta plaques and neurofibrillary tangles, but it didn't manifest. So, you know, they, yeah. we need to balance the information, don't we? We should, yes, yes. And that's what you need the scientists to do. I find that it's wonderful that so many people have a voice, but I find it very problematic that there's no peer review. Very <laughs> good. Mm-hmm. With those voices, right? I mean, it's good. Th- those are opinions. Exactly. I think you really need somebody with training and expertise and you need people to check on what you're saying before an opinion becomes a fact. So I think it's important to, to address that. I can't agree with you, Bourne. I'm so glad you've raised that because with the internet, you know, with technology, people, every second wellness, so everyone's an expert, but you're not actually an expert. <laughs> so that's yeah. a very good point that you have raised. And I think you said a lot of people's fears at rest there, but also at the same time stimulated the need for people to take charge of their lifestyles. Can we transition to the research, how it was, you started talking about that in the beginning, how most of the research has been done on male brains and not female brains. And how can we possibly understand us as females from a male brain. Yes, and I, I think, well, that's obviously the major focus of my work and my mm. career. And myself and my colleagues, we really had to swallow <laughs> a lot of ego and pride for, I, for a long time to I get to imagine. a point where we can actually talk about the research because for a long time, nobody really wanted to, mm. to hear about it. But so I think the turning point for me personally was really understanding how Alzheimer's disease is not a disease of old age, but starts in midlife. And the other pushback I used to get was that, well, women live longer than men. So, of course, mm. women get Alzheimer's more than men. And so, little by little, we were able to kind of dismantle <laughs> this assumption. Mm, thank goodness. Right. So, the first thing was women don't live that much longer than men. So, in the United States, women tend to outlive men about four and a half years, not 20. Mm. And if you combine that with the knowledge that Alzheimer's starts in midlife, then my question changed to what happens only to women and not to men in midlife that could potentially increase the risk of Alzheimer's disease mm. in men. But very good. An Alzheimer's predisposition. And the answer, strangely enough to me, was menopause. Mm. And that really, that discovery led at least me to to really 
reconsider and rethink women's brains in a very fundamental way because the history of how women's brains got neglected is that we were just working off the wrong assumptions altogether. So starting from Darwin, right, people mm-hmm. just assumed that women's brains were inherently inferior mm. to men's brains. Shocking. And the research afterwards was really aimed at proving that. Yeah, exactly. It was totally right. biased. Can I, mm. Yeah, so let's get a bunch of brains, male brains and female brains, and let, let's find proof that women's brains are inferior. And so oh. people start looking at size. Mm. Right? Exactly. <laughs> and of course, we now know that size doesn't quite matter as much as quality and, and a lot exactly. of other things. But women's brains are a little bit smaller than men's brains because women we are, are a little smaller. bit smaller than men. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Nobody for a long time thought about actually correcting for head size. Mm, gosh. And so, you know, like the smaller size back then was proven enough that women's brains were inferior. Then fortunately, somebody said, well, you know, we need to account for the fact that women are, are a little bit smaller than men. And once you do that, then we're exactly the same size. Size, yeah. There it's you go. Difference. And then people started to find other excuses, basically, until in the 1960s, something very dramatic happened. So a drug called thalidomide Mm. was being given to a number of people, including pregnant women, Mm -hmm. to alleviate many symptoms, including nausea. Mm -hmm. And later on, it turned out that the drug actually had catastrophic effects Mm -hmm. on the babies. Mm-hmm. And then the FDA intervened and took a very strong cautionary stance saying, well, from now on, all women of childbearing age, which is any woman from puberty through the endomenopause, is going to be excluded from research. Mm. And to be fair, they just really wanted to protect women mm-hmm. and the babies. But by doing so, they effectively excluded women from research. Mm. So then we have decades and decades of Research that was focused only on men, in part because of another big bias, which I refer to as bikini medicine in in the book. Mm, I saw that, yeah. Right, where bikini medicine is basically saying that men and women are exactly the same person, except for those parts, those body parts that can fit under a bikini. So the reproductive (laughs) organs. Yeah. Right. So if that's your assumption, if that's your working hypothesis, then if you have a drug that works for the heart, you give it to men. And then once you have tested it and dosed it and and done all your safety certifications, then you're going to give it to women as well. Mm -hmm. Because the assumption is that a woman's heart is the same same as a man's heart because it doesn't fit under a bikini. Right? Mm, Crazy. It's so unscientific, that thinking, isn't it? I mean, it's just not even... Bizarre, yeah. Yeah, it's bizarre, but the point is that for a really long time, science was purely observational. Mm. Right? We were just looking for differences. Mm. So anything, and any organ that looked anatomically similar was also assumed to function the same way. Mm. So, right? so the heart looks the same, is anatomically broadly the same, so it must also function the same way. And just in the year 2000, it came up that that's absolutely not the case and that even when we're talking about having a heart attack, you know, the symptoms of a heart attack are not the same 
for men and women. Like men usually have the, the typical mm-hmm. Hollywood heart attack where you have pain in your chest and the left side and then shooting down the left arm. For women, the symptoms are more like you feel like you have the flu, mm. right? feel chest compression rather than pain, you feel nauseous, perhaps your neck hurts, your back hurts, your shoulders hurt, you get a headache. Mm. And doctors are just not trained to recognize the symptoms in women, so much so that women are seven times more likely than men, seven times Mm. more likely to be discharged from the ER while having a heart attack. That's insane. Yes, and women are also much more likely than men to get the DNR order, which is a do not resuscitate Mm -hmm. for the same reason, because the doctors just don't notice the symptoms of the heart attack. So they're not not treating it. Mm. Yeah, they're not treating it because perhaps they don't even know how to treat it. You know, we, we just don't have the right diagnostic tools and many drugs were tested in men. And then the same dosage was given to women to the point that women would overdose. Right, because we, we metabolize exactly. drugs faster than usually. Even there's, there's this thing that I find was so bizarre. Female Viagra yeah. tested in 23 men and two women. <laughs> oh my gosh. Female, fe- female yeah. Viagra was tested in 27 men and two women. Female Viagra. Okay. Viagra. You tested in men. Why? Why are we testing men at all? Why? Why are there men at all in there? Listen, it's male logic. That's all I can think. And it's yeah. not very good logic. <laughs> it's just so bizarre. It is bizarre. Mm. I don't understand that. I really, I find this so counterintuitive. No. But for us, oh. you know, brains are even more difficult to measure yeah. than the heart or the lungs or, or even your ovaries. They're mm. much more difficult to access. And brain imaging has really fully developed, I would say, in the past 10 years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now we really have better resolution we have the machines that we really need we have a variety of tests that we can yeah. use and so finally we're we're looking at real differences between mm-hmm. men's brains and women's brains and mm-hmm. these differences really matter because other other things that nobody ever talks about is that women have very specific risks as related to their brains and the health of our brains so women are twice as likely as men to have anxiety and depression we're three times more likely to have an autoimmune disorder including those that attack the brain like multiple sclerosis mm. we're four times more likely to have a headache or a migraine as any man knows right? mm. <laughs> yeah also more likely to develop a brain tumor, the meningiomas, which is the most common form of brain tumor. We're far more likely to die of a stroke. Mm. If we get a stroke, we're much more sensitive to infections, including infections that can impact the brain. Mm. We're not as good as getting rid of inflammation once it's chronic and systemic. And on top of all that, women are more frequently diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease to the point that every three Alzheimer's patients today, two are women. Mm, That's crazy. It's a disaster, right? Yeah. And so we really need research on women's brains and why this is happening and how do we get in this situation in the first place and what we can do to really support their brains and optimize cognitive health as women, not mm. as the average person or as a man, mm. which are not. This is so good. I'm so glad that you're doing what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, thank oh. you. 
Well, I think a lot of women listening to this now are saying, thank goodness, there's someone actually on our side who's actually doing proper research to help with understanding our brain. So carry on. This is fascinating. Thank you. And I'm very happy that we got that I got a chance to be doing this because honestly, nobody talks about women's brains. No, they don't. Even, even when we talk about women's health, we don't talk about women's brains. No, In they fact, don't. Especially when we talk about women's health, we don't talk about their brains. We talk <laughs> about their breasts. We talk about their ovaries, which is great. It's great progress. And we need to talk about all that. But our brains are just as important and just as different. It's so important. I remember I've been been teaching on all this mind-brain stuff for so many years and writing on it, as I mentioned to you. And the, the one thing that I've said for years, and I don't have your experience, I haven't studied the female, male-female brain differences like you have, but I've done the mind-brain connection. But I've always said that you can't, you know, based on my training, that you can't say that a male brain is superior. You know, that whole argument, that the, the whole discussion we've just had. And I'd always say it's not about size, it's about connections. And you know, the, the response when I talk in an audience of saying there is no difference it's just diff- it, there's not a superiority value difference thing it is just a difference that's equal and right. should be embraced like a lot of men and women are shocked by that they don't they so they it's don't so ingrained yeah. yeah yeah and also i think it's confusing because now we're actually required to enroll men and women in the studies yes but what people don't appreciate is that the vast majority of publications and articles and even clinical trials just lump men and women together. And then you have a statistician who comes in and says, okay, so I'm going to remove any effects of sex, right? And then we're going to look at whether or not the drug could work for the average sexless person, which is once again saying that men and women are indistinguishable, except, you know, there's some ovaries in there. Exactly. And you say so clearly in your, your TED Talk, by the way, is fantastic. And we'll put that link as well as the link to your book and, and you. all your details in the show notes. But you say there that we can't, that the brain and the ovaries, the reproductive system, these two are talking to each other all day long. I loved how you said that. I'm kind <laughs> yes. of paraphrasing you. So can you, can you take us, can you explain that? Sure, gladly. And, you know, that's another bias against women's bodies to yeah. not realize that there's a connection yeah. between our brains and our reproductive organs. And I think it's really a tendency in Western medicine to just look at one organ at a time, right? If you're a neurologist, you look at the brain. If you're an OBGYN, you look at the ovaries and tubes. But there isn't one person that looks at both mm. at the same time. And I think we're we're losing, we're really missing out on these connections between our brain and the entire rest of our bodies. And what's what my research has really shown is that the interactions between the brain and the reproductive organs are really crucial for brain aging in mm. women, especially in women. And the reasons for that is that the way that the brain communicates with the ovaries and that the ovaries talk back to the brain every day of our mm. lives as women is through our hormones right so i love how you i love how you say that it's so good our brains talking ovaries are talking back to our brains every day all day through our hormones yes there's literally a system right there's the neuroendocrine system or more specifically the hpg axis which Mm -hmm. is the hypothalamus pituitary gonadal axis Mm -hmm. that is literally a highway that connects the brain to the reproductive organs and then back to the brain and the messengers that go up and down this highway are literally our hormones. Mm. So I think everybody knows that 
men and women have somewhat different hormones. I mean, we share them, but the proportions are different. They're mm-hmm. inverted. So men have a ton of androgens, like mm-hmm. testosterone, and women have a ton of estrogens, mm-hmm. and especially estradiol, which mm-hmm. is the most potent of our estrogens as far as brain health is, is concerned. Mm-hmm. But then what happens is that these hormones have different lifespans. So for men, testosterone doesn't really run out until late in life, Mm -hmm. which is a pretty slow process, I would say, Mm -hmm. to the point that many men are still fertile in their 70s and sometimes Mm -hmm. even in their 80s, some of them, which is incredible and good Mm -hmm. for them. Yeah. Really good for them, (laughs) right? Yeah. But for women, we lose our most potent estrogens that we lose our estradiol in midlife during menopause. And, mm. you know, honestly, midlife sounds like 60, but in truth, it's really any age between 40 and 60. Exactly. Right. So it's a lot earlier than many, than most people really realize. And mm. I have so many friends who are going through menopause in their early 40s, mm-hmm. 42, 43, 44, mm-hmm. some naturally, some because of medical interventions like an ophorectomy, which puts you in menopause almost instantaneously, mm-hmm. hysterectomy, there's a high chance of going through menopause. And these are surgical procedures that remove the ovaries, that's called an ophorectomy, mm-hmm. and or the uterus, and that's called a hysterectomy. And once you get these procedures, you you go through menopause. Does anyone else find bras very uncomfortable? I have always struggled to find one that fits me perfectly and I hate those annoying tags that scratch my skin. And this is why I am so thankful I found Third Love. Third Love is probably the most comfortable bra I've ever owned and one that fits perfectly. Third Love uses the measurements of millions of women to design bras with all day comfort and support. Bras come in over 80 sizes, including half cups, and are made with signature memory foam cups, no slip straps, and smooth, scratch-free band with a table's label, so no annoying itching. Every customer has 60 days to wear it, wash it, and put it to the test. And if you don't love it, return it, and Third Love will wash it and donate it to a woman in need. So far, Third Love has donated over 15 million in bras. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now they are offering my listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash drleaf now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash drleaf for 15% off today. The link and offer details will also be in the show notes. What's happened so much with a lot of women, and because I work with a lot of OBs and, and mm-hmm. endocrinologists as well, and, and it happened in my experience, women are not prepared. They're not told that this is going to happen very often. They're not yeah. warned that there's going to be a surgically induced early menopause. And right. if you come from a family, like with my case, I had to have major surgery because of four kids and whatever, and they did the whole men- hysterectomy, ophorectomy, everything. And my family doesn't has, has very late menopause, very mild symptoms. Mm. And suddenly at the age of 46, I'm going into full-on menopause overnight oh. from surgery and my OBGYN did not explain anything I if, if I didn't know what I knew in the field I am I would have right. been completely thrown and I went back to her and said hey listen this is surgically induced this is not you know what I'm, so that's another side it right. needs to be patient you said earlier on when they go for d- genetic testing you need genetic mm-hmm. counseling when women in going through this time of life there needs to be a lot more counseling around what's happening in our bodies yes and also whether or not the ophorectomy is necessary like I find that mm. Very often, what you need to get is a hysterectomy, 
right? Not but since the ovar- mm-hmm. right, since the ovaries are there, it's an easier procedure, it's an easier surgery in some ways to just remove the entire apparatus, if you will. But it's not is not mandatory. Exactly. It's not right. Mandatory. So we'll- for a long time I think I think what a lot of surgeons who are not trained in brain health assume is that there is no consequence. Like if you if you no mm. longer want to have children, if you're done having kids or you just don't want them, then let's just get rid of the ovaries as well. It's crazy. Right? Without thinking, well, it's not just the ovaries that are gone. At that point, it's also the connection between the ovaries and the brain. And we know that losing this connection is going to make your brain age faster. So if you don't have to go through this procedure, just don't do it. And mm. I, a lot of what I'm trying to do is really educational in some mm. way. Like at Cornell, I reached out to the Department of OBGYN and Women's Health, and we're having these wonderful conversations, and we're now going to officially collaborate on all my wonderful. Projects. Yes, and I'm really hoping that by really showing people data, Right, because it's important mm. to show actual proof that it's not just theory. You can actually see in women's brains how their brain energy changes, the risk of Alzheimer's increases. So it's really important to convince doctors in other fields that there's a natural connection between us in neurology and them. Exactly. That's so important. So, yeah. many, so many male OBGYNs, may, they, they, they need to be, women and men, but especially men need to be educated in the yeah. impact of ovarian brain. Can you explain what happens in terms of the brain in middle age and estradiol and all that yes. the process and if you, if, you, if you do have an ophorectomy and so on? Right. So what I think what's really important to clarify is that we call, we talk about estrogen for women, testosterone for men as sex hormones. Mm -hmm. The reason for that is that they were discovered in 1990, you know, like a long time ago as related to reproduction and fertility. But then in 1992, Dr. McEwen, a Rockefeller, who's like a huge hero of mine, Mm. showed that these hormones that we were associating with reproduction and fertility actually had a lot of functionalities and a lot of roles that had nothing to do with having kids mm. and everything to do with brain health. Mm. So the very same hormones that we associate with fertility are not just involved in that. They, they really are so incredibly important for the health of our brains. Like for women, estradiol is perhaps the most important or at least the most well understood. Mm-hmm. And we call it a master regulator in the female brain because it really has mm-hmm. a lot of different hats, you know, as it's a jack of all trades in a way yeah. that yeah. Right. So I think the most important feature is that it really boosts energy production in the brain. So estradiol goes to your brain cells and literally kind of clicks the on button. And these these neurons start burning glucose much faster mm-hmm. and better and more efficiently. So it really boosts Brain activity. Brain, brain activity. Mm-hmm. Yes. So when your estradiol is high, when your estrogens are high, then your brain energy is high. high. Mm. That also means that your immunity is higher. Mm. Estrogen also has an effect on the immune system. It makes it stronger. It has an effect on plasticity. It literally makes your neurons grow new dendrites. Mm. Right. You can even see mm. it throughout the menstrual cycle. Wow. You know, when estrogen is high, 
our neurons have a little bit more branches. And when we lose the estrogen, the branches kind of retreat. And wow. that's really, that's very subtle. Obviously, it's a very subtle effect, but you can feel them. It's cumulative the over time. You can, yeah, you can feel it. And it's yeah. also cumulative over time, isn't it? For sure. Especially once you lose these little push in you know, it like as we start going through perimenopause and then to postmenopause we stop making these hormones and it's not just the ovaries that are not longer working in a way you can feel like i think most women realize that their skin perhaps is getting a little drier their mm. hair is getting a little bit more fragile the skin is getting also a little bit drier your metabolism is, is slowing down so many women experience these changes but the same thing happens in your brain you know your neurons slow down once you mm. lose your estrogens mm. which may or may not be a good thing you know mm, i mean we yeah. associate it with oh my goodness my neurons are slowing down there's a problem but perhaps it's an adaptive response mm, that's a good point right now i'm hope yeah i'm thinking it's probably adaptive although these changes in metabolic activity inside the brain are also responsible for the symptoms of menopause, which I feel is something that so many women just don't know about. We're just not wow. aware just because nobody talks to us about expl- it. Right? Explain that again. Explain that because what you've just said is profound. So, and right. m- most people don't know. So, can you explain yeah. that again? Yeah, 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 for sure. So, as a society, as women, we tend to associate menopause with the ovaries, with the function of the ovaries. But when women say to you that they're having hot flashes, night sweats, insomnia, depression, anxiety, brain fog, so many women tell me they, they yeah. have brain fog. Tiredness. Right? Yeah. Fatigue, memory lapses even. Those symptoms don't start in your ovaries. They start in, in your, your brain. brain. Mm. Those are neurological symptoms. We're just not used to thinking about mm. them as such because when you need to address them somehow, you don't go to a brain doctor, you go to an OBGYN. Exactly. Right? So there's this confusion. And I think it's really important to know that something is changing inside our brains. And just to give you a sense of what's happening, there's a very specific network inside the brain that is called the estrogen network in women's brains. And it's very rich in estrogen receptors. So hormones mm-hmm. work like a key in a lock. Mm-hmm. And for the estrogen, estrogen is the key and the estrogen receptor is a lock. Mm-hmm. And once the estrogen binds to the lock, it opens this little door. And once the door opens, everything wonderful happens. Your mm-hmm. brain energy is high, your immunity is high, your plasticity is high. And that is particularly important for specific brain regions, especially one that is called the hypothalamus, Mm -hmm. which is really teeny tiny Mm -hmm. and is involved in regulating body temperature. Mm -hmm. So when estrogen doesn't activate the hypothalamus correctly, then the brain is not able to regulate your body temperature correctly. And that is why women get half flashes. flashes. Mm. So the communication between the estrogen is activating the hypothalamus to control the body temperature. And if that's not happening, that's when you experience those hot flashes. Right. Even... Even worse when estrogen is like all over the place, right? Because hormones fluctuate Mm. before the run out. And so one second is high, one second is low. And your hypothalamus is like, ah, what's happening? (laughs) And boom, you get the hot flash. And yeah, and the same for sleep. And there's another part of the brain that is in charge of sleep and wake. And if estrogen doesn't regulate it correctly, we have trouble sleeping. And the same for memory, the same for mood, the same for attention, the same for language. You know, estrogen is really involved 
in every important higher order cognitive function. So there is a there is a readjustment that needs to take place as women go through menopause, and I really would encourage every woman to think about menopause and going through menopause as a time to really take care of themselves and giving their brains the time to really adjust. This is critical. This is a critical thing that you're saying because we have to focus menopause's brain pause. We literally have to <laughs> focus on our on our brains because if you think of it, men don't have as much estrogen, but they don't lose it as quickly as I assume. And so they're using estrogen in that way for the brain. So if we if we are estrogen drops, but if it goes completely, we lose all those functions. So you have to keep your estrogen at a certain level in order right. to have that a, a correct adaptive response, I would assume. Yes, and also for men, their brains are really wired to use testosterone. For so that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for, for them. So they, they probably don't quite understand what's happening to us. Yeah, with the right? changes. So, yeah, so then, Lisa, what do we do about the situation? What, do you want to explain more about the brain before you explain the, the solutions? I know, I think it's important to, to stop giving bad news and just, <laughs> <laughs> and just start giving some solutions. Yes, yes and something good. I would just say to everybody that all of this makes more sense if you think of estrogen as a fuel for the brain instead of just a fuel for babies. That's so good. Right. And that we really need to support our hormones as much as it is possible for us to do because much of our hormonal health, as much as as well as brain health, is really in our control. And this is also something that many of us don't fully realize, don't, full, don't fully appreciate, that the way you live your life and all the choices you make on a daily basis actually have a strong effect in your brain and body. So we mm. really need to make choices that are good for our brains and their hormones at the same time. And there are many many choices one can make. Well, that's so, and then we're going to go into some of those now. So just to, to quickly summarize what you've said is that we need to start thinking as women about estrogen being fuel for the brain as opposed to estrogen being just fuel for the for our sex organs. It's actually a brain fuel and that it's affected as our life, as our body changes in menopause, perimenopause through menopause. So we need to think of at that time, I've got to really look after my brain. And you also talk about the effect of stress on hormones and you've referenced that as well, that there's a lot of things we can do. So let's, right. let's have I summarize that okay? Would you want to add to that summary no. before we dive into some some things that we can do? Yes, no, by all means, let, let's talk about things we can okay. do. Okay, go ahead, yes. go ahead. Well, so there are many things one can do, and I think that the most obvious thing on everybody's mind is hormonal replacement therapy, mm-hmm. because it, we're talking about the need for hormones to mm-hmm. really keep our brains healthy and and young mm-hmm. and active. So. About hormonal replacement therapy, I mean, we, we could do like three hours on that I alone. I know, but and, 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 <laughs> and I'd love to bring you back again to talk about that specifically, because I think it's oh, something good. that we definitely need to address in more depth. So let's see, just touch on that now, but we will definitely do. I'd love to have you back again to talk okay, in more depth. Okay, so great. So I'll just, I'll just give you the shortest possible answer on this, which is that we really need to understand it better. Right now, what happens is that at first... All women were put on hormones for a really long time. And then it turned out that the dose was wrong, the timing was wrong. And the type of hormone was wrong, was for equine urine, wasn't it? So it was from <laughs> Yes, yes, and so the very first estrogen formulation, which by the way is still used. I know. Was conjugated equine 
estrogens, which is estrogens that were extracted from the urine of pregnant mares, pregnant horses. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you had to get it somewhere. So it has to be a pregnant animal with a lot of estrogens floating around. And that was the initial formulation. There was, in some women, it was just that. And in other women was estrogen and the progestin, which is really important because taking estrogen alone could potentially increase the risk of cancer for some women. Mm -hmm. Whereas the combination of estrogen and progesterone seems to be more similar to a regular menstrual cycle. Mm-hmm. So if you no longer have a uterus, then you're okay just taking estrogens alone because the risk of cancer to the cervix is very low since you no longer have it, mm-hmm. the uterus. But if you still have a uterus, then it's better to take estrogen and progesterone together. Mm-hmm. However, that was the first generation of drugs. And then the NIH formally started those drugs and found out that if you give these drugs, these hormones to women who are more than six years post-menopause, the therapy actually increases the risk of every possible thing from breast cancer, heart disease, dementia, even anxiety, blood clots, strokes. So there was a bit of a failure. Mm. Gosh. And, and most women just heard the results, especially the breast cancer risk, and just stopped taking the hormones overnight. And there were a lot of lawsuits. And that also led to pharmaceutical development to really slow down and almost stop mm. out of fear of exposing women to harm. But you see, that's once mm. again, it, it's really, it really ties into everything we've been talking yeah. about today, which is like hormones were given to women without being tested. Yeah, you see, that's the thing. It's incredible. Incre- to every woman in menopause was basically put on hormones, just assuming that that's what we needed. But there was no real testing done. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. And that, with this, you're talking, you're referring to the Women's Health Initiative, that massive that's initiative. Yeah, that's true that you, you raise a point there that why didn't they test the hormones first before they just right. put women on them? And then right. also because they had no idea of the, of the, of the time factor post-surgery and all that kind of thing. It's incredible. But so now I think there's much more of a conservative approach in which hormones are used the way they're supposed to be used, like lower doses, different methods of administration, different timelines. They're being given to younger women for sure, closer to the time of menopause. And many of us are looking into using the hormones prior to menopause to really optimize brain health for Mm. the long term. We know that these hormones can really help with hot flashes for many women, not all women, but, you know, it's really, it really helps with hot flashes. It helps with osteoporosis. It helps with other conditions. However, we do not know for sure if taking hormones the way we've been giving them to women is really protective against dementia. And this is something that is really a big focus of my work right now to, to, do, to start doing clinical trials and to really also have the right tools to monitor the effects of treatment in women, in women's brains in particular. Well, that's fantastic. I'm so pleased you're doing that. And when we talk about hormones, can you distinguish between your bioidentical versus the chemical, chemically, chemically constructed in laboratories versus the ones, the equine ones, you know, these different types of hormones? You know, honestly, I know this is equine, a big discussion. <laughs> it's a big discussion, but I mean, from a purely scientific perspective, they're not that different, <laughs> these hormones, okay. unless you have your own preference. So mm-hmm. bioidentical hormones are coming mostly from plants. And something that is very beautiful about this whole concept is that, so estrogens, 
estrogen, actually mm-hmm. singular, is perhaps the most ancient of hormones, mm. which means that all different species make it. So plants make estrogens, animal, animals make estrogens, women make estrogens, and these hormones can go across species, mm. which is why the hormones from a pregnant horse can work just as well, sort of, in a woman's mm-hmm. body, the same way that the estrogen made by a plant can also work in a woman's body. So then it comes down mm-hmm. to preference. You know, mm-hmm. it's the same. For me personally, I'm, I'm a big fan of all things natural. Mm-hmm. So if I had to take hormones, I would take bioidentical just because mm-hmm. it's more appealing to me personally yeah. to take hormones from a wild potato. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. From a sweet potato than yeah. from a pregnant horse for some reason. But yeah. the thing about bioidentical hormones is that we need more clinical trials to really mm. conclude that they're safer than the artificial hormones. Mm, and okay. we do not yet have this data. And then I would like to look into that for sure. I am mm. personally a big fan of, of getting hormones and estrogens in particular from food. Mm, that's what I want to do here because you've got diet plans in your book and things as well, which I assume are going to help with hormones. Yes. So it's the same exact principle, right? We're, we're trying to get hormones from plants or from potatoes, like well, yeah, yeah, yeah. not from other uh, vegetables that contain these estrogens. And the point is that, yes, you get a very concentrated dose of hormones from these bioidentical hormones, but you can also get a milder version of the same active principle, but just eating foods that contain estrogens in the form of phytoestrogens, so estrogens from plants, Mm. which act like a milder form of estrogens in their own bodies with definitely fewer side effects and fewer health concerns. And there are some foods that are very rich in phytoestrogens, like soy, that are a little bit controversial because... Mm. I wanted to ask you about that, yeah. Yeah, so there again is, is a little bit the same history as hormonal replacement therapy in that soy has been widely used for millennia in many societies, but when they got formally tested in a lab on mice that were expressing a human gene for estrogen receptor positive cancer, the soy isoflavin seemed to really activate the breast cancer. And that freaked everyone out. Everyone out. And then it took a long time and many, many years to clarify that eating soy does not seem to increase risk of breast cancer in women to the point that even the American Cancer Society really writes it in their current guidelines that there is no reason for women to not eat soy unless they're allergic, right? Unless they don't like Mm -hmm. it. Yeah, yeah. But the link with breast cancer is, is not nearly as... Uh, strong as we thought it could be. That said, soy is not the most palatable of foods, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, in Asia, I think there's also a genetic substrate to really eating the soy that was really an adaptive response to the fact that soy is so common there. And Asian women have a much lower risk of breast cancer than American women to start with. Mm -hmm. They don't suffer from hot flashes nearly as much as we Mm. do. So clearly their diet seems to have a beneficial effect on their health and their menopause. So through diet, we can actually, as our body naturally goes through perimenopause and into menopause, if we are eating the correct kind of diet, we can move through it in the way that can protect our brain. 
It seems like it. And I, I'm not endorsing soy in any way, but I... Well, I a combination would, of foods. I see you have a whole, yes, a whole plan. Yeah, I think more about a combination of foods that have really no side effects. And mostly these are flax seeds and sesame seeds and for some reason dried apricots. Ah. Who knows? But yeah, we eat them regularly in my in my home. It's yeah. it's a little snack for me and my little girl. We have a little bit of dried apricots and dried prunes, which is another good source. Yeah, most grains and legumes are good source, especially chickpeas mm. contain quite a bit of phytoestrogens in the form of lignans, which is not isoflavins. It's just another another form that is a little bit more gentler, more gentle. And then a number of fruits like strawberries are quite rich for a fruit. Cantaloupe is another one. Mango is another one. So sweet fruits and berries are also good sources of phytoestrogens. And I'm going to mention the dark chocolate. Oh, good, yeah. Um, yeah. So it's another form of phytonutrients that have an estrogenic properties. So that's good for you too. Yeah, that's fantastic to know that. And and I know you also address in your book, you, you have a an eight steps to a well-nourished brain. And then you also talk about supplements and you talk about exercise and being mindful. So one of my questions here is stress does affect mm. hormones, doesn't it? And can you briefly talk about, I know that's a huge question too, but in terms of not managing stress and hormones. Yes, I think it is a very important thing to do, especially for women, because so many women are under stress, very often chronic stress for a number of reasons, especially around midlife, right? So there's mm-hmm. other many studies from the National Psychology Foundation showing how women have consistently, or at least women experience consistently higher levels of stress than men, especially after age 35, which I think makes a lot of sense because mm-hmm. that's really when you are probably trying to have a very successful career. Mm-hmm. And you're probably getting married, having kids, taking Mm. care of elderly parents and Mm. running a household and try to retain some shape on your body and be happy with yourself. Maybe a little me time. So stress levels really mm. go up to the roof. And that's a problem because stress can literally steal our hormones. Mm. And that is because... Cortisol, which is the main stress hormone, works in balance with their estrogens. So if cortisol goes up, your estrogens go mm, down. Mm. So it's really important to reduce mm. stress levels and reduce cortisol levels because that can really sink your estrogens. And this is something that we never talk about, how stress mm. is specifically bad news for women's hormones, but also women's brains. Mm. There's a lot of research showing that Chronic stress, especially when associated with consistently high cortisol levels, can really impact uh, brain health in that it promotes, it accelerates brain shrinkage mm-hmm. and memory loss already in our 50s, mm. but much more so for women than for men. Well, and you can see that when you do brain scans. And that's, I totally can support what you've just said because the mm-hmm. clinic, clinical trials that I do go around the whole mind-brain connection and we've been looking at stress and anxiety and depression, et cetera, in 
males and females, all ages. And seeing from, we look at the physiology, so we're looking at cortisol and ACTH and all the various different measures, telomeres. And, and then also, we, I've been using QEEGs. And we just, we, we see that. We see that the, we've, we've got, our millennials have the, the most stressed out brains. I mean, it's, it's, mm. it's, which is interesting to see. And, and some of them are already at, in the age, early 20s, having hot flushes and mm. experiencing menopausal symptoms and things because they just, and if you look at what their story is, they're not managing the stress. So there's such a strong link. So by the time they are going to get into their 50s or 40s or maybe have <laughs> early early menopause, maybe in their late 30s or something because of stress. I mean, this is real. We're seeing this in our studies and we're seeing that when, when we do mind management, when we help people to manage the toxic stress, there's a massive change in the QEEG. There's a massive change in the mm-hmm. blood, in the hormones. So, so yeah, I can... Right. Back you up. So I'm so pleased to see you you working in that area as well. Thank you. And uh, to be honest, we're just starting to really look at stress in a very consistent way. So now we're mm. measuring cortisol levels in all our patients and C-reactive protein to look at inflammation and how that could potentially impact brain mm. health. And I, I'm, you know, I, I have this bizarre background, very, very much biology driven and. I just really, I love meditation and stress reduction. Mm. And as a scientist, it was very hard for me to really jump you know, to yeah. the other side. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yet there's, a lot of, yet there's a lot of science on it. There's been 150 years of, of, of incredible science showing how when we use our mind through meditation and mind management, we can change. And it's amazing how that's been so hard to bridge that gap into yeah. integrative medicine. Yeah, and to really look at meditation as, as something that is worth investigating from, from a scientific perspective. I, I think there's been so much progress in mm, these has. few years. And I, for me, I, I was doing my PhD at NYU mm. and I met Dr. Tanzi, Dr. Rudy Tanzi. Yes, yes. Right, I know his fantastic, work. Yeah, other big, big hero of mine. And fantastic. He was so sweet mm. with me. And he, he really was like, you know, I think you would be a great vegetarian. And he totally <laughs> converted me right on the spot. And then he started uh, talking to me about meditation. I was like, what is this guy talking about? Oh, wow. <laughs> That's amazing. I, I trusted him and I've been meditating since. And I think especially now in this, you know, it's this bizarre, unprecedented times mm. where everybody's so stressed out and there's so much fear and we don't quite know what the right thing is that we should be doing. I think that meditation yeah. and just finding ways to just keep your mind quiet is such a such a fantastic tool. And I would really encourage everyone to to practice as much as they can. And I also, mm. in my book, I really encourage everyone to think about their brains as a muscle. You know, there are you can feed it properly. You mm. can exercise it properly. You can do a number of things that can really support it and make it grow. And meditation is one of those. And and once you really consistently engage in practices that are known to support brain health, and really the more you do that and the more your brain will perform better for you. Mm, thank you for saying that. It, it just is, it's, 
my listeners know that I talk about that kind of stuff all the time, how you could exercise our brain and build our brain and detox our brain. And I have an app called Switch that I'll let you get your hands on if you want to have a look because it just basically takes meditation. It, it's got meditation, but then it takes it beyond meditation into mind management. And we're finding, this is what I've been researching in my clinical trials for years now. And that it just what you're saying is, is to see the brain as a muscle that you've got to exercise and feed and look after is such a great way of viewing this. It, and it, it gives people a sense of autonomy, a sense of control, which is so important. Right. Yeah. I also really like to say this thing. Basically, you, you want to treat your brain like your best friend. Mm. Right. I think it's so important to think. Yes, because our brains, you know, they're working for us. They love us. You, we yeah. need to think of our bodies and brains as something that really loves, is in love with us and really wants us to be happy and healthy. And so I think That's it's really lovely. important. To, yeah, I think it's really important to understand scientifically sound ways to really support brain health and then make those choices every day that can really support your body, your brain, your mind, your soul, you know, everything that, that really makes a person a person because all these things can really make it or break it for you, you know, and so much of your health is in your own hands and we just don't really have the knowledge perhaps to to apply that information. Mm, but that's why we've got scientists like you out there and, and working on on these things and, and the work that I'm doing and the work that so many other scientists are doing. This, this, we can In this day and age, we really can get a hold of that information that can help us improve our life. And what you've brought to the table in terms of women's health and Alzheimer's and understanding. I mean, just the X gene, there's a comment that you make, and I know we, we, we are, have, I've really asked you so many questions, but there's a, a one question more that I'd love to ask you because you explain it so well. How and you started explaining about the X gene and then the X Y gene we didn't get into, but how the X gene is common to everything and how we've mis ex, misunderstood that X X is just female. I mean, X is just the female gene, and that it's but the X is in all genes. Can can yeah. you explain that better than I can? I just I love the way that you. <laughs> <laughs> I I'm not sure what I said in the book, but I, I think why in your uh, TED talk you did it as well. You explained a little bit about how we've misunderstood the sex genes, and that they that in every in all our genomes you've got the X chromosome, right, and that it plays right, such a massive right. role in brain health. Yes, right. So. The thing is that we're born with a very specific set of genes and some are sex chromosomes, which again, is not necessar- they're not necessarily only involved with sex, but that's what, what they've been called forever. Yeah. So for women, we have an XX chromosome combination. So we have two X chromosomes, mm-hmm. whereas men have an X and a Y. And what people don't seem to know very often is that the X chromosome is so much bigger than the Y chromosome. Mm. 1,098 genes as compared to the 78 genes of the Y chromosome. Mm. And so it's a women, huge difference. It's a, yeah, it's a, it's a thousand genes. Basically, so when a woman is born with her double XX, which is also the title of my book, right? The XX yeah. gene, then we immediately have a thousand more genes that somebody who's born with an XY male genotype. Wow. And the differences are not just related to reproduction, but many of these thousand genes that we have in excess of a man are actually involved in brain function. And we're now trying to better understand 
what kind of functionalities they serve. But something that seems clear is that they're really involved in this interaction, in this connection that we were talking about between the brain and the reproductive system. Mm. So the X genes involved in that connection between the brain and the reproductive system. Wow, this is absolutely amazing news. Uh, Amazing information. We're going to put all the links to your book and everything in the show notes. How can people find out more about you and get your books and resources? I think, well, I'm I'm not a big social media person, but I really like Instagram. So you won't find me on Twitter. Not okay. Twitter for me. I'm way too sensitive for Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> but I really mm-hmm. like Instagram. I'm quite active on that. And my handle is Dr. D-R underscore Moscone, M-O-S-C-O-N-I. Mm-hmm. My website is lisamasconi.com. And I also have a website for the book, which is thexxbrain.com. Okay, we'll put all that in the show notes and I strongly recommend that that you get hold that that the listeners get hold of this book. It's fantastic, filled with great information and tables and charts and lots of stuff to guide you through this complex. I know this has been quite a, a scientific discussion, but an incredibly yeah. important discussion. And your book explains everything so so very well. And I would really love to invite you back again to dive into hormones and all, all these yeah, things a little deeper. It. It's yeah, been a, I would love to. I think there's so much that we could talk about. And yeah, definitely talk about hormones because so many women want to know about hormones and they think there's so much conflicting and confusing information out there that I think it's important to really listen to scientists in that case because your health really is influenced by whatever you put in your body, including medications. Exactly. And I don't think people realize the impact. People are so quick to eat something, grab something and not think it through or take a tablet and not think of what are the implications of taking this? Is there not a better way? I have a headache of, you know, a better way of maybe dealing with this. And so I'd love to dive into something about that in the future. And thank you for your time and your research and your wisdom. And please keep doing this. And and with your Women's Brain Initiative, we can put that link on the website as well so people can find out more about that as well. And Yeah, if anybody wants to participate and and get a brain scan, we're, we're actively enrolling. So oh, if you want wow. to get brain, that's, yeah, come that, over. Yeah. That's fantastic. That's so exciting. Well, I'm sure we're going to get a lot of response from that. So we'll put that information up as well. I'm very, very excited about it. So thank you for your time. And it's been a wonderful interview. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful. If you want more tips and help with managing anxiety, depression, and mental health, be sure to visit my website at drleaf.com and to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I also include a schedule of my speaking events and so much more. And follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leaf. Also, I love seeing all your posts on social media about this podcast. I love seeing what resonates with you and what you've learned. So be sure to continue posting and tagging me and letting me know what you think and how these tips worked out for you. And don't forget, leave a review and keep spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I really hope you learned something new and helpful. Till then, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf.
This podcast represents the opinions of myself and my guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any individual medical questions you may have. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions or corrections of errors.